0: Good morning. This morning we are reading in the ESV standard, English standard version, uh, starting in Daniel 5, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple purple, and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven." until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The well-documented, well-documented overthrow of the Babylonian Empire by uh, the joint alliance of the Medes and the Persians in the middle of the 6th century BC is actually represented in the Bible from an internal perspective, right here in Daniel chapter 5, where we get the famous expression, I saw the writing on the wall. Now, the narrator, this is what happens in in Daniel chapter 5. The narrator has basically skipped over two decades of time between Daniel chapter 4, which we looked at last week, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and and here, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar. Over 20 years have transpired between these two chapters in the book of Daniel. The great King Nebuchadnezzar died 23 years before what Cynthia just read. Alright, So four kings later is Nabonidus, who came to power during a coup. Nabonidus spent 10 of the 17 years that he reigned over the Babylonian Empire, not in Babylon, but basically in what is now Saudi Arabia. He was reigning at a distance. And, and what he did for, for over half of that time was he appointed his eldest son, Belshazzar, as essentially a puppet king, a co-regent who is is installed in the city of Babylon. So that's what's going on. Uh, Belshazzar is uh, a puppet king for his dad. And what we know from history is that Cyrus the Great, who was the leader of the Medes and the Persians, uh, Cyrus and his army defeated Nabonidus and his army of the Babylonians in October of 539 BC. Uh, roughly 50 miles north of the city of Babylon, okay, it's likely then, right, when Belshazzar knows the Medes and the Persians are coming, it's at that point that he holds this decadent banquet. Now, the banquet, and nobody knows exactly the purpose of the banquet. It may have been a customary thing to do before a big battle, Uh, Whatever the reason, the banquet itself and what we discover about it gives us insight into Belshazzar, what kind of a man he was. Uh, What do we see? That during this drunken affair, uh, he commits a calamitous act of poor judgment. He uses the sacred vessels of a foreign god's temple Right? That, that, that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, had defeated decades before. He uses the sacred vessels of the God of the Hebrews from the temple in Jerusalem. He uses these vessels as drinking mugs, basically. This would be like stealing the Stanley Cup and using it for a keg party. It'd be like stealing the Stanley Cup from the Canadians, and coming down here and drinking with the Stanley Cup. Even the Babylonians understood that this was a really inappropriate thing to do. And so this miraculous hand appears, leaving Belshazzar basically in a puddle of his own liquid and leaving an inscription on the wall in the palace. Now the inscription we know everybody saw, and it was ultimately a warning from the Most High God that Belshazzar's time was up, that Babylon's time as a world power was up. Now, you've been following me through the book of Daniel in the last several weeks. We're seeing in this amazing book of the Bible how people of faith in the God of the Bible can flourish in challenging environments when those around you, when the culture around you is not sympathetic to your faith to your worldview that Scripture gives you. Okay, that's what we've been looking at. And Daniel chapter 5, just as Daniel chapter 2 did, Daniel 5 pulls the curtains back again from the throne room of God to reveal that as history unfolds, God is not idle. As history unfolds, God is not detached from human affairs. We see in Daniel chapter 5, and we'll keep seeing this as the book progresses, that the chessboard, so to speak, is littered with leaders and nations and movements that have come and gone. But we discover that God has been moving the pieces. And what I hope you're going to see today is that if you are a believer in Daniel's God, if you follow and believe in the God of the Bible and his son Jesus, then this is our calling As kingdoms rise and fall, we remain faithful to God and leave the ultimate judgment to him. If you're a follower of Daniel's God, we live by faith as kingdoms and leaders and movements come and go, and in all of these things, we have to be intelligent, we have to be discerning, uh, but we leave final judgment to him. We hold our opinions at a very low level and let him be the finer, final arbiter of justice. So, as we look at this, we're going to talk about the writing on the wall and what it meant for the people who originally saw it, for Belshazzar and the Babylonians and for Daniel. What did the writing on the wall mean to them? But then we're going to talk about what it should mean for us. What did the writing on the wall, you know, over 2,000 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago. What does it mean for us who are trying to make sense of it today? All right? What did the writing on the wall mean? Well, what it meant to Belshazzar was that he was weak and Babylon was finished. The inscription Daniel tells us in verse 25, and he's, he's reciting, he's, he's replaying this, for King Belshazzar, the inscription was uh, the words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. These, these four words, really uh, three words, one was repeated, okay? And uh, now, this, this was in Aramaic. Aramaic and, and Hebrew, the alphabets contain no vowels. The alphabets in Aramaic, which was the, the main language of the time, and in Hebrew, uh, there are no vowels. See, the, all the little markings, under the letters, that tells the scribes what vowels to use. But if you were just looking at these words, all you would see were consonants. And then you would have to use context to figure out what. The vowels were and how to understand the writing. So for instance, if you walked in here this morning and you saw projected on this wall, those letters, you would look at them for a second and then you would say, ah, okay, somebody is telling me that this is the first day of the rest of my life. Yes, you know what it says, but you would ask yourself, now why is that on the wall? What does it mean for me? Why is it up there in this place, at this time. So for Belshazzar, it wasn't a matter of translation. He he knew what it said, but he didn't know what it meant. It wasn't a matter of translation. It was a matter of interpretation, okay? What does it mean? So um, what we do know is that uh, mene and tekel and parsing, these are Aramaic words which which were basically... um, if you, if, you, if you interpret them, if you read the consonants as nouns, because they could be nouns and they can be verbs, if you read them as nouns, you basically had measurements of weight or coins of currency. You have the mina, you have the shekel, uh, tekel is the shekel, and then parsing is the plural for Peres, which was a half shekel. The word bas- basically meant half of, half of a coin, half of the measurement. Okay, so you have a mina, you have a shekel, and you have a half half shekel. But here's another interesting twist. The consonants in Aramaic for the word parson, which was plural, its singular was a word peres. They're the same consonants for the word Persia. So the Medes and the Persians are coming, and there's an inscription on the wall, and he has no idea what it means, but he sees the consonants for the word Persia. Okay, so the ominous inscription was a riddle, and nobody there understood its significance. But the queen mother, we hear about the queen in the passage, uh, don't think Belshazzar's wife, the queen. Think an older woman who would have been around for a long time. Okay, it's probably the queen mother. Somebody who would have been around for a long time in the king's court and would have remembered decades ago a former chief advisor of the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's 66 years since Daniel, as a young man, was deported to Babylon in 605 BC, okay? He's now an old man. And it's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562 BC. So Daniel had not held a prominent government role in decades. But this very unique circumstance, um, the queen mother, and most importantly, the most high God, bring him out of obscurity into a main role once again. Now, it's not in Daniel's character, if you've been following along with us, uh, to disrespect a sovereign. But you see that his demeanor is very grave, right? And I'm just going to read it to you, uh, verses 22 and 23 and 20, yeah, just verses 22 and 23. Uh, he says to Belshazzar, he, he reminds Belshazzar of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's life and how Nebuchadnezzar was great and knew he was great, and because of his pride, God humbled him and when he was willing to say, uncle, 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 I, I admit, I'm, I'm a proud son of a gun, uh, God restored his sanity and restored him to his throne. So Daniel recounts all of that for Belshazzar. And then he says, and you, his son, think, um, not necessarily biological son, think, uh, think uh, what's the word? Not, not predecessor, uh, successor. There it is. Think successor. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all of this. See, he's saying, you know about Nebuchadnezzar's history, you know about his life, and you know about his legacy and what happened to him, right? Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, right? And he said, you took the vessels and you drank with them. This is, this is the true God, and you've, you've, you've toasted with his sacred equipment, gods of wood and stone and iron and bronze, right? He says which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel was telling Belshazzar that he had not learned Nebuchadnezzar's lesson. Unlike the great king of old, Belshazzar had not humbled himself. And so now Daniel interprets the frightening riddle, not with nouns, with verbs. He looks at the consonants on the wall in Aramaic and he doesn't interpret them as nouns, but he interprets the words in their verb forms. You know, some English words are that way. The, the, the Brits have pound. It, it, pound can mean a, money, uh, a measurement of money, but it could also mean a measurement of weight. Uh, so he, he interprets the saying verbally and, and what does he say? Well, mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular for parson, your kingdom is divided, literally cut in half. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So, by using the verbal forms of the words on the wall, representing weight measurements, he's basically saying to Belshazzar, you've been weighed, you've been assessed and found to be insufficient. You're a lightweight. And it wasn't because of his lack of ability. It was because of his lack of integrity, his lack of character. That is why God was weighing him and finding him insufficient. And so, you know, there, there were economic and political and and cultural reasons for why the Medes and the Persians overthrew the great Babylonians. But what we see here in the Bible is that there was also a moral explanation to it that was hidden except for this time when God revealed it. There was a moral reason for why Persia conquered Babylon. But the writing on the wall meant to Daniel and to the exiles from Judah something I think very comforting for them, that regardless of how bleak times may seem, how arrogant and irresponsible those who are powerful and influential and wealthy may be, God does intervene in human affairs to remove and install leaders and governments and systems and economies we're given in Daniel chapter 5 an extremely rare gift, insight. The gift of insight by what? By divine revelation into the downfall and removal of a leader who had become too reckless and an empire that had reached the limit of its capacity to govern well. Now, mostly, we don't have that kind of insight from the throne room of God, do we? We have the history books, we have archeology, span we have the newspapers, we have our senses, we have our collective and individual and and ethnic and familial memories, but but 99.9% out of the time, we do not have God's perspective on why history unfolds as it does, do we? So the writing on the wall for you and for me, means that we trust that God's will is always at work, even though we don't know what it is. As Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2, when God answered his prayer to help him interpret Nebuchadnezzar's first amazing dream, he changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. But listen to this. Um, You realize that for Daniel and the exiles from Judah, the incoming king and uh, empire was no more a God worshiper than the outgoing one, right? Now it's true that the Persian empire had, a better, had for the Jews a better foreign policy for conquered peoples. You read Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, you just look into the history history books, the, the Medes and the Persians had a better way of dealing with conquered peoples and provinces and nations. And that proved to be better for the Jews. And yet the Jews nonetheless would remain for centuries a subjugated people. Whether under Babylon or under Persia, they were still a subjugated people. And so the takeaway for us, I think, from this is that we, we have the calling and the responsibility as Christians, and listen to this if you're not a Christian, this is very important, um, we have the responsibility to discern what governments are doing and what leaders are doing and how people are acting who are in power and who are influential. We, we have the calling to discern, and what I mean is evaluate, all right, to evaluate well and responsibly and honestly to discern all of this stuff, but leave the ultimate judgment to God. On their record, on their performance, on what they're doing, we need to discern intelligently and carefully and graciously, but we leave the ultimate judging of these people and these systems, we leave it to God. Just because God removes one leader or administration or one type of economy for another, it does not imply that he is more pleased with the new one than he was with the old one. Of course, we have to use discernment. We have to discern between right and wrong in our society and in the world today. We must discern between good and evil, and we must discern between what is wise and what is foolish. There are absolutes. And such discernment is why institutions like slavery and segregation were brought to an end. Because good people have used good discernment in the world. Such reasons are why corrupt leaders in government, in education, in public works, in religion have been deposed. Because people are using good discernment. But listen, when Christians in an undiscerning way, enter into the polarized debates around us in our society taking place right now, right? When Christians in an undiscerning way enter into those debates, right? uh, Trying to answer and argue over questions of which leader or which political party or which type of economy is more Christian. We forget that we're comparing different versions of the same problem whether it's the Babylonians or the Persians, right? And then fill in the blank with today's issues. Uh, These are systems that do not honor God and are dedicated to maintaining their own power and influence. That's their objective. And we need to be discerning of that as well. As God's exiles, right, who live in a world that is not our home, We have to discern these things without without pronouncing final judgment on them. Because history is still unfolding. We don't know what's going to happen in a year. We don't know what's going to happen in a century. As God's exiles in a world not our own, we discern without judging. Because as we discovered earlier today in Psalm 75 verse 2, at the set time, God says... At the set time, I will judge with equity. Now, why am I pressing on this point? Because you've heard me talk about it before. Why reserve judgment, right? Why reserve the final opinion and position on all of these issues? Because we can't read the writing on the wall. It's a great expression, But the reality is that we can't read the writing on the wall. We don't have the writing on the wall. You know how rare, even in biblical history, it was for that to take place in front of Belshazzar and the party and for Daniel to come in and by divine revelation, Daniel is able to explain the meaning of what miraculously appeared on the wall there. You know how absolutely rare that is? You and I don't have the writing on the wall to read it's not there. I've heard leaders, I've heard religious leaders say things like, well, this storm came, this earthquake came, these fires uh, out west are coming uh, because of this type of sin in our society. Or, or you know, the election results, uh, they represent God's displeasure for and then fill in the blank. Uh, That is using the same false assumptions as the disciples when they said to Jesus in John chapter 9, Lord, Rabbi, who sinned? When they saw the blind man who was blind from birth, they said, Lord, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, well, neither. It wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sins. Jesus said, this is why he was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we can't get into that passage in a whole lot of detail, but what Jesus was saying there was, guys, you're asking the wrong questions based on false assumptions. You see, that's what legalism does to us. It doesn't matter what your perspective is, where you grew up, what your personality is, what your political leanings are. We're all born legalists. And the more passionate we get about our perspective and how we see things, the more legalistic we become against others who see things and experience life differently than we do. We will always veer towards legalism once we've established what we think is the correct way to look at things. Right? You don't like the results and you want to judge somebody. Rather, rather... Then being superstitious and being legalistic, Jesus is saying you you need a different set of assumptions to start asking the right questions and here's the right question to ask. Regardless of why something happened and we don't know why it happened almost all the time, ask the question, how might we glorify God in this moment? That's Daniel's witness. I don't know why I'm living here I don't know why I'm going through this, but I am. How can I glorify God in this moment? And we're going to see in, Daniel's, in Daniel chapters 7 through 12 in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Daniel was not idle during those decades of obscurity after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, when he wasn't such a well-known chief advisor. He may have been unknown for a while, but he wasn't And the writing on the wall also means for us that God was not idle, that God is never idle through our struggles, whether your personal struggles or the struggles of a people or the struggles of a nation or the struggles of the true church. God has never been and never will be idle. All of history, from Babylon to Persia, from Britain to America, from one uh, administration in America to the next administration, from from um, one government that is socialist or totalitarian, another government that is a, a republic or a, de- a democracy or a capitalistic, whatever. From one thing to the next, what we find, what we find throughout human history, is that God has always been working with purpose. Galatians chapter four, verse four tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And Jesus of Nazareth was born into a society and into a situation where he struggled with us, right? He struggled with us as a Jew subjugated by the Roman authorities. And he died under the authority of an empire that had replaced an empire before it. And like the hand, that was sent by God, Jesus in his life pulled back the curtains of the throne room of God to reveal what God was up to in history. We don't get a writing on the wall because we've been given Jesus. God's final word on what he's doing in human history and what he wants you to understand and respond to as as his creatures. Right before Jesus was executed, when he stood before the Roman governor, Pilate, who had the legal and political authority to spare him or to execute him, he said to Pilate, who was trying to figure out, are you a king or not? And what, what, what's your deal? Pilate could not figure this guy out. And Jesus said to Pilate, for this purpose, I was born. Here's where the curtains in the throne, on, on the throne room, room of God are pulled back. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in the next chapter in John 19, as Pilate continues to ask him questions, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God reveals in Jesus That all the pain and all the conflict and all the injustice and all the upheaval of human history from the 6th century BC to the 21st century, all the fuss, all of it, Jesus reveals through his life and through his teaching and through his death and through his resurrection and his promise to return. He reveals that all the fuss, all the mess, all the heartache, all the conflict, it's all ultimately for our good. Uh, Tim Keller used this illustration of, of uh, a baby at birth. A baby at birth is miserable, right? The, the, a, a baby at birth is what? Think about it naked and cold and bloody and pasty, and in the old days hung upside down by their ankles and spanked, and now they're poked and prodded and and rubbed and under a light, and and, uh, it's absolutely horrible for the baby. The baby's screaming. The baby's hungry. The baby wants to be warm. The baby can't figure out what is going on and has no idea that everything, everything happening around it is for its good. That everyone bustling around it and moving around and doing all these things is are all acting for the baby that has no idea what's going on and is absolutely irate that it's going on. And your lack of understanding when you look at what's happening in the world and what has been happening in the world for thousands of years or yesterday. look at what's happening in your life, right? A lack of understanding does not imply a lack of meaning. Most of the time, we cannot answer the question why. But that does not imply that there is not a purpose. God is always at work. And that is why so often people don't like Pat, answers when they're struggling and you say to them, "Oh well, you know, the Bible says and and, and you know all th- God and they go, "Don't stop preaching at me." You know why they say, "Stop preaching at me?" Because they know you don't know why they're going through what they're going through at the moment. That's why we have to be discerning. We don't know why they're going through what they're going through. But we know there's a reason. We know there's a purpose. And ultimately, Jesus revealed that purpose. For God so loved the world, we sang, that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him to save the world. As kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, As movements replace one another, as economies and economic and monetary systems ebb and flow, as as migration movements and refugee movements, as we'll see next week, come and go throughout history, the believer of the God in the Bible is called to remain faithful to Him and to leave the judging to Him. Discern, discern without judging. God will give the final judgment on things. As we consider American politics, as we consider the culture wars of our society, as we think about economies and what's the best way to use money and to um, address things like trade and the market and technology... And how to deal with the hurts that we see taking place in the world, whether we live and die under Rome or Greece or Babylon or Persia or Democrats or Republicans, from Daniel's perspective, we're Christ's exiles. Whoever we live and die under, we're God's exiles. Why? So that the works of God might be displayed in us. When you're frustrated that you don't know why, trust that God knows exactly what he's doing and be faithful. As our sister said earlier today, you know he told you, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love everybody else as you love yourself. That includes your enemies. Your enemies are your neighbors too. That's our calling, and that is the word of God from Daniel chapter five. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we want you to uh, write constantly on the walls of our lives inscriptions that tell us exactly what you're doing and why people come and go and why movements come and go and why people suffer the way they do and why we've had to endure what we've had to endure. Father, we confess that you are not enough for us, that your word is not enough, that your son is not enough for us. We always want to know why. Father, give us the kind of faith that we see maturing in Daniel in his old age. Give us the kind of faith that we see in the early church as they trusted in their risen Savior, uh, although life was very hard for them and they had very, very few privileges and liberties. Father, help us with the privileges and the liberties that we have to do good, to love one another and to love our neighbors, that the works of God might be displayed in us. And Father, help us by your grace to guard against legalism. Help us um, to be open-minded, confident in your word, and in very little else. Help us to discern without being judgmental. In the name of Jesus, our our, our Savior, Um, amen.